Welcome to the Changemakers in CRE, a podcast by Released. We're bringing you the stories and the people driving change and innovation in the commercial real estate industry. You're about to hear from a changemaker as they share what went right, what went wrong, what they've learned along the way, and what's next. So tune in and join us as we uncover what the future will look like for commercial real estate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Changemakers in CRE. I'm your host, Tom Wallace founder and CEO of Released with Commercial Property Management Software. And today I'm joined by Rebecca Guzman-Vital, and she is the Group Head of Retail Strategy at Chelsfield. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. It's really exciting. It's a really excited to chat to you today. It's something that's a really unique story and, and, and really interesting story and angle about retail, which I'm excited for you to share about and learn about. I think it's really cool. So looking forward to getting stuck into it. I think to get us started, would you... Be able to please just give us a background on yourself, background on Chelsfield about in your role. Sure, absolutely. A little bit about myself. I, I've been a sort of retail real estate specialist now for 15 years. And I did 10 years of those at CBRE, mostly based out of London. I worked on quite a few of the London estates and I had the pleasure of working with most of the major landlords in London. I also did a bit of time in Hong Kong, out in Asia. And so that kind of gave me a, a bit of a different perspective as to what was happening in Asia, what could happen here, because they kind of seem to be living in the future as far as retail and, and logistics is concerned. And towards the end of my tenure at CBRE, I decided it was time to kind of jump ship and go client side. And that was five years ago. I joined Chelsfield, which is a, a London-based developer at heart. And what we do is really complex repositioning mixed-use schemes. We've done really exciting projects here in London, but we've also been involved on a major Paris portfolio on behalf of our main investor, who are Olean, and we've done some really cool retail and office lettings there. We also bought a tower in Madison Avenue on their behalf too. And more recently, about five years ago, we set up a fund out in Asia, also buying with a sort of a selection of investors, buying really cool mixed-use schemes and repositioning them, bringing new tenants in and just breathing new life into assets, which is really what we're all about. Absolutely. And I think uh, one area I'm keen to drill into a little bit, we spoke about the other day, was around the retail side. I think retail has grabbed plenty of headlines in the past few years, most of them pretty doom and gloom, right? The end of retail, it's all going online, the high street's dead, shopping malls are all falling apart, all of that. I know you have a different angle and yes. a different take on it and, and you think you've got a way that you can really take it, take a different approach and really make it work and have success. I'd love to just dive into that and talk about what you've seen and what you've done and what you've experienced. Sure. I mean, look, I think retail definitely isn't dead. It certainly wasn't dead before COVID and I think COVID has has shone light on a lot of silver linings and and at the most basic level, perhaps, for you and I as consumers and, and everyone listening to it, I think it's shown us and it's allowed us to rediscover the joy of browsing and the joy of shopping in physical locations because suddenly in March 2020, we were just not allowed to do that. I'll tackle the sort of negative side of retail first and then I'll tell you why I think it's still very much worth investing in. Obviously, there's been a lot of structural change happening to the retail sector for the last probably 20 years now. The biggest shift in that relevant retail real estate is, of course, e-commerce. And in particular in the UK, we are by far one of the most penetrated markets. And we've got a fantastic logistics setup infrastructure that kind of powers e-commerce and its growth. And everyone kind of knows the stats, but it effectively, I think it's something like 20p for every pound spent in the UK is spent online. 
that said, there is another stat that is also worth bearing in mind. N- not so much the 80% that is still spent physically, but 85% plus of every pound spent is still influenced by a physical location. No matter how penetrated a market is, I still believe that physical is such a pivotal point in the customer journey. And it doesn't actually matter whether you purchase in the store or not. The point is you need that physical space to be able to convince your shopper to purchase. And it might be two weeks later on their mobile phone, or it might be there and then going online, shopping off of Instagram or TikTok or whatever. But the point is you still need that store to make sure that you're showing them what your brand experience is, what your customer experience, what you stand for. And I think actually the point around values is really important. And there's no better way to show customers what you're really made of than a physical space, in my opinion. Yeah. Do some of the, do the brands care at this stage about, it reminds me of, I'm jumping around, but it reminds me of attribution in software, right? So we do all sorts of different marketing and it can be complex to figure out when you want to figure out, okay, what marketing works, what marketing doesn't. We try to attribute deals to whichever channel they came through. Do brands care about the attribution? Like we can actually tie this online sale back to a presence in the store or are they just at the stage where they're like, look, the, the volumes are going up to a good level and our store volume is this. Like, are they starting to look at those those things or is it, uh, is it still very early? That's such a great point, actually. I think they were very much in that kind of mindset pre-COVID. And suddenly mm-hmm. during COVID, it was all about omni-channel, which it, essentially I believe, and certainly what brands tell us when we meet them, is that they don't really care where it comes from. They understand that every piece of the puzzle is really important and they need to get everything right and have the right Mm -hmm. balance. But all they care about is removing friction. And again, I think to go back to e-commerce and why it's been so fundamentally kind of radically changed the industry, when you look at what Amazon has done in retail, effectively, they've just removed friction. And I think Mm -hmm. with COVID and all the challenges and constraints that brands had to then face, they've all realized that omnichannel is the only way forward, that they need to have a fantastic e-commerce platform, that they need to have physical stores, that they need to have a great warehousing strategy, and that all those three things need to kind of go hand in hand. It's an ecosystem and you really can't, you can't afford not to have these three pillars anymore. And it can't just be about, I need to sell X amount in that store. Of course, to a certain level, it is. When they talk about store P&Ls and they come to us and they say, well, this store needs to make X amount of money, top line revenue, and we expect it to be profitable by X years. That's fine. But that's only one metric, I believe. And, and when you go at kind of board level and you look at what really matters to those businesses, often it's about market share and growth. And it depends, of course, where they are in that journey, right? So if they are in Series A or Series D funding and they're looking to IPO, then actually stores are one of the easiest ways to gain new customers and, and bring, bring down there, your right? exactly and bring down your marketing costs. So to your point about mm. attribution. Yeah, that, I think it's I just got me think it's just really interesting because if they think about the store as not just a, not just where people go to buy, it's actually a very effective brand building and marketing channel. And if you're not using a store, like if your store is not that, you still have to build that brand and you still have to reach those customers in another way. You're still paying effectively rent to get to get the same thing. It's just your landlords 
aren't on the highest street, your landlords are Facebook and Google, basically, which is where you're going to pay otherwise. It's really shifting spend around. It's a massive change of mindset, though, because obviously, up until recently, a retail store is like, that's where the transaction happens. And if the transactions aren't happening there, then you would assume that store's failing. But if you're measuring it from a different point of view, what's the break? What's the impact on our brand and overall and our, and our marketing and our visibility to customers? Yeah, that, that means it's a totally different way of thinking about it and measuring it. And you're just not going to be as concerned about what's going through the till that day, as long as obviously your overall revenue is is growing. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's spot on. And to your point, it's so crowded online now. It's so easy to reach saturation and it's becoming increasingly more and more expensive to yeah. advertise and to get that new customer because you're competing for eyeballs and you've yeah. got TikTok and IG and all these other platforms. And frankly, people just don't have that bandwidth anymore online because they're far too consumed with other things. Yeah. And those landlords, if we if I call them landlords or a substitute for landlords being TikTok, Facebook or Google, Google. they know how to charge a lot better than most landlords do. Like they, they, they look at the data. They know, they know exactly how much they can charge. They know exactly how much they can increase it by, and they're not tied in by a lease. So your costs can go up very quickly. And there's actually been the death of quite a few brands where they've relied um, solely on, say, Facebook marketing, and then they change the pricing effective overnight. The model doesn't work anymore. Suddenly, it's not profitable to go and sell, and it's a really dangerous position to be in. Rebecca, just switching gears a little bit. You, we last time we spoke, we spoke a little bit about one of your uh, assets, I think it was around Knightsbridge that you did some really unique things with through COVID and after COVID and you worked with some great brands. I think it'd be really cool to hear just a bit about what you've done there, that, that sort of that real world experience that you've got. You pulled together. Sure. Essentially through COVID, we decided that we needed a repositioning strategy. So it's an asset to give you a bit of context that we acquired on behalf of Olean. And through COVID, it was about yeah, we'd owned it for about 10 years. And so we'd done a lot of work around tenant mix and public realm improvements and making sure that we were working with all our tenants, be it offices, residential, or, or more specifically retail, where most of the value of the asset lies, to really kind of work the asset, make sure that they had the right spaces, they were moving into the right parts of the estate with the right configurations, et cetera, et cetera, which is no different to what a lot of our peers are doing in London. But we felt very strongly that because Knightsbridge is so attached to that idea of Harrods and Harvey Nichols, and mm. our estate sits literally between both of those department stores, we were so reliant, perception or otherwise, but we were so reliant upon international tourists that we really needed to pivot and we mm. needed to make our estate locally relevant. We needed to make it exciting, vibrant. Mm. We need to remind people that we were here not just for one thing, i.e. luxury shopping. We were here for mm. many more things. So effectively, we have worked a lot with brands that we know have already a great traction locally. So we've brought some of those in, and that, and that can be F&B brands or apparel or accessories. We've also chosen to diversify our mix. So we've brought a, a bit more tech in. We want to bring more well, in discussions with sportswear brands. We want to bring more kind of non-apparel brands into the estate. Definitely a lot more F&B. And mm -hmm. then the third part of that strategy was really to make sure that we were keeping up with the changing nature of retail and that was what that meant to us was length leases uh le lease length sorry what i mean by that is we were at the beginning of our journey when we acquired this asset we were very focused on delivering long-term value creation and long-term growth and obviously through that you want strong covenants 
10-year leases. That's it. Yeah. We've since realized that actually the number of brands that are successful and can or want indeed a 10-year term has massively faded through COVID. And there's nothing wrong with having a variety of lease lengths and there's nothing wrong with having pop-ups. And that's really a lot of the work I would say that we've done in the last two and a half years has been focused on those pop-ups. And it's really interesting because you put so much love and so much effort into these transactions. And actually it's not about the income for us. It really isn't. If it were about the income, we would just leave these spaces vacant. But we brought some really cool brands onto the estate. And the one I really wanted to chat about today is Castor. So Castor is this amazing premium Originally menswear, but now they do both sportswear brand. And it was set up by two fab guys out of Liverpool, really young guys, really entrepreneurial, set it up, saw a gap in the market for what I believe was the sort of male answer to a Lululemon, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Really focused. It's a focused good way on of describing tennis. it, actually. Yeah, focused on tennis, focused on golf, and they've had some amazing sponsorships since. They've grown a lot as a business, and we actually were the first landlord ever to give them a physical space, and that was about three and a half years ago. So they did a a very brief pop-up with us through Christmas, and it was their first kind of dipping their toe in the water, trying to understand how physical could work for them. And fast forward three years, they came back to us and said, actually, we want to take another store. We now have five stores open around the country. We're looking to open more. Would you have us back? And we were like, yeah, of course we would. They've taken a store from us, which if all goes well, they'll be here two or three years. But we fully believe that they'll probably want to stay longer after that. And I think that's the beauty of pop-ups too. When brands come in, they can really understand the location. They can really get to know their customer locally. And then actually decide, well, this was a pop-up. We weren't just trialing it, but actually it's working really well for us. So we're going to stay. Fantastic. I think you can see they're just going to go in and revitalize the space, bring a lot of new people in and just create a really interesting mix. The, the elephants in the room for your, from your side of it, I believe, would be obviously there's, there's shorter term leases. So there's like the, how is it valued? And a lot of people have to change their thinking around that. And the second piece is a lot more work for... People like yourself. So, I mean, back, I think if it was back sort of 20 years ago, signing a 10 year lease, that would have been quite a nice thing to do. You sign the lease, it's done, you sit back and you, and you sort of watch the clock until it comes around again and then and do it again. But obviously, now you have to be a lot more proactive. You have to understand that you have to have a good relationship with those tenants, right? It's not, you don't just rely on a, on a contract. You have to understand are they enjoying this space? Are they likely to stay? Do they want to extend? So, I imagine you, you've now had to reshape that business and bring a lot of energy to be able to do that. And, and I suppose probably different skill sets in the business as well. Can you talk me through if that's, if, if you've seen a lot of change there and, and if you have, you've had to adapt as well, how you work to fit it? Yeah, completely. And I think COVID was, again, one of the silver linings is it allowed us to get even closer to our tenants. But I'll answer the first point around value impact first. I think obviously when you do pop-ups, and, and I said this very openly, we don't do them for income. We do them because we believe in the vibrancy and the greater good and good estate management. And I think we are lucky enough that we look at our estate almost as an open air shopping center. And we never look at a single deal in isolation. We look at that deal and we look at what it can bring to the estate as a whole 
and really the halo effect it can have. So some brands we know will be really strong for us on PR. Some brands will bring a completely different shopper. Some brands are actually helping us change the perception of our own brand as the Knightsbridge estate. Because going back to my point earlier, I think it's so important for our customers and, and consumers more widely to understand that we're not just that collection of stores next to Harrods and we don't just care about luxury stores. That That is one side of what we offer to the public but it's only one of many really really interesting i, I mean i commend you for taking it on and, and it, it feels like by moving first or moving quickly to take this opportunity through covid you're really going to put the, the business in a great position i imagine hopefully oh i, I feel strongly about that but of course not everyone can be can be winners right there has to be people on the other side of that and i'm, I'm guessing that if there's for for a traditional landlord who still wants to sign those long leases and and perhaps they don't care so much about the mix and they're just thinking well it is about income for us we'll we'll have that shops that vacant I imagine on the flip side of this you'd expect times would get quite tough for them unless they can adapt yeah well yes and i think that pro possibly maybe applies to smaller landlords that maybe have less resources. But I have to say, I have been completely kind of in awe of how many of our big REITs, so be it Landsec or British Land, have completely changed the way they approach the landlord and tenant relationship. And I think a lot of us uh, sort of on the smaller side, if you like, have been looking at some of the changes that they've implemented through COVID and things that actually have stayed after, well after COVID around customer partnerships and customer relationship management. And I actually don't think anyone really truly in our peer group looks at signing a 10-year lease as a sort of, let's just sign and kind of say hi and goodbye for another 10 years. I, I really believe that we've all understood now, even, even before COVID, that we need to be in that partnership mindset with retailers because it truly is a retailer market. It's an Occupy market. Whether we're talking about the retail sector, the residential sector, the office sector, the, the logistics sector, in fact, Anything you look at, it is absolutely an occupier's market because there has never been as much choice today mm. as ever, pretty much, for them to think, okay, well, if real estate still has so much friction to apply to my business, I can find another solution. I don't actually need to sign a 10-year lease because there are so many options for people to say, well, and I can take a pop-up store or I can rent. I can go to a BTR product and rent. I don't need to own anything. Same for offices. I can go to WeWork. I don't actually need to sign a 10-year lease with anyone. And so all of these businesses in, the, in these different sectors for me have just brought to the forefront to us as landlords that we just need to do better. And I think we are moving in the right direction. And equally, I have to say, retailers through COVID really, it was really clear to see the ones who actually wanted to work with you and the ones who were in kind of firefighting mode and just didn't have the the bandwidth to, to deal with landlords. They just needed to bring their costs down. And fair enough, I understand some of these businesses went through incredibly, incredibly hard times. But equally, we, we looked at, and compared some of those relationships and thought, well, some of these businesses are very well capitalized and are just not really caring about the landlord right now. And so suddenly the onus was on us to take the entire hit when in practice, it was no one's fault that we had national lockdowns yeah. around the world. Yeah, it was really interesting to watch across the world because we, as a company, we operate in 
across the world, New Zealand, Australia, North America, the UK. And it was, I think what a lot of landlords struggled to do was trying to figure out, okay, who's really hurting here and needs some support and, and wants to come to the table and who's just using this as an opportunity to save money and hoard cash in case things go differently. But it, yeah, it was a, we found the best long-term relationships and the best operators were the ones that came to the table, sat down and were very open about it and said, let's, like, this has hit us both by surprise. Let's work this out. I think that that was the best response by a long way. Okay, that's super interesting. You mentioned officer as well. I know you've touched on it. We, do you see similar changes? I mean, that's it, been similarly like with the whole work from home, working remote. It, I don't think it's really settled down to a new norm at all. It's certainly going to play, at least the, the increased flexibility will play a very long term. I think that that's around now forever. Do you have any, I know everyone's got an estimate of, of how they see the office market playing out, but do you have any thoughts on, on where it might head to over the next sort of few years as we hopefully move past COVID? I think as a retail expert, I see a lot of correlation between what was happening in, in the retail sector, maybe what is happening now in offices. And we have been talking about polarization and flight to prime in retail real estate forever, for what feels like forever. And that is now more crystallized than it ever was pre-COVID. It's quite clear that brands will are prepared to pay premium prices for premium product. And I mm. think offices is no different now. I think we are going to see a huge polarization between grade A stock and pretty much everything else. And within within that everything else category, there's, of course, that huge swathe of millions of square feet of grade B and grade C offices that will probably be obsolete in the next five, depending on what market you're in, in the next three, five, seven, ten years because of regulation coming through to protect the Paris Accord, climate change, ESG, yeah. all of that agenda. So I think yeah. that polarization is only going to get stronger and stronger as the months go by. And when I say flight to prime in retail, we talk about core West End here in London, but we talk about the, the Golden Triangle in Paris or some of the really strong locations in Soho in New York, for instance. I mean, you can see the brands want to be in these locations and these locations only. And it's almost... It's almost now gone full circle. They used to only want a few few flagships to to cater to kind of big neighborhoods. Then they dissipated and went, oh, we want to have stores kind of a bit everywhere. And now they're back regrouping, saying, no, what we actually want is bigger, better stores. Actually, not not always bigger, but certainly better stores, meaning better configured in AAA locations. And I think offices is exactly the same. I think I can imagine businesses, small and medium businesses in particular, saying, we still need a, an office function. We are going to have a flexible working policy. We may not need to have 100% occupancy in our offices five days of the week, but we still need a great location, great amenities, great access, meaning transport, other businesses that you might be doing business with. So you'll still need to be in a great location. Mm -hmm. But you may not need as much space and you may not need it for as long as you thought you did. Because as your business grows, you may not want to commit yourself to 10 years in the same location. And I think what that means for us as landlords, again, is the exact same thing as retail. We should not be afraid of saying not everything in your office portfolio is 10 or 15 years to AAA covenants. There'll be businesses that will want to grow with you. There will be businesses that will upsize, downsize as they go through their own cycles. And that's okay. Because that, again, for us, 
It's about mitigating risk, mitigating void, and making sure that we're smoothing out the curve of whatever economic cycle we're in, what point of that cycle we're in. So, yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking about how how much closer retailers getting to software companies. If I think about ourselves, where we software as a service, we have customers that are on monthly or annual contracts, but they're certainly not on 10-year contracts. And so the onus flips to us to make sure that our tenants are happy, that they have a great experience, that they enjoy, that they're getting value out of the software. And we have a number of different ways that we will measure that, that we, and we are very data-driven in that sense. And you can just see the real estate industry is that they started starting to converge and getting closer and closer just to really needing to understand the customers, which I think ultimately it's, it's a really good thing, right? It's going to have better experience for customers or tenants at the end of the day. I think what it was interesting, your point earlier about the REITs being able to adapt quickly. I think those, the REITs and the bigger organizations often do have the resources to, and they can see ahead and they can put it there. I think the really interesting segment, which is yet to be seen to see how this will be impacted is the, the, the next tier down, if it's a family office, if it's property that's been owned in a family trust for a long time, where actually they're just used to owning that property and enjoying receiving the income, but aren't particularly engaged with the running or the management of it. They just have agents that will fill that space whenever the lease is close. I saw a similar thing back in New Zealand after the 2011 Christchurch earthquakes. Huge regulation around earthquake strengthening came in after that around the country. And you suddenly had a uh, family trust owning property where they had to scrape together $2 million, $10 million to strengthen that building. When they don't actually have that money, they just they just receive the, the dividends or the rent from that, you know, that property every year. And it was created a huge shift in the market. It created opportunity and it created loss. Um, and I think it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of this happening now. It's going to be a very interesting few years ahead, I think, that's for sure. I think so too. Awesome. Hey, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating story. Really enjoyed listening to it. And I just really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you. You've been listening to The Changemakers in CRE, a podcast by Released. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show and sharing the episodes you love. That helps us continue bringing you the best stories about what's next for commercial real estate. Thanks for listening.